you know, if you're really that powerful, you have an army that fights for you. You lead an army that does these things. You don't, you, you're not out there, you know, slugging it away in the trenches and in the ditches. You, you're not supposed, that's not your role. Your role is to lead that army and to encourage people. You're not going to be fighting. And that Excalibur item that you have, that's your, that's your piece of power. Other people fight, not you. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. As I keep saying, war has changed. It's the recent theme of War College, and it's not just conflict, but the ways people cover conflict. Increasingly, journalists and researchers are using open source intelligence, social media, and academic disciplines such as history and anthropology to explain the complicated conflicts of the modern world. One of the groups doing that is CELA Report. CELA Report is a non-commercial research project exploring contemporary and historical small, small arms and light weapons in the Middle East and North Africa and Central Asia regions. Here to talk about that work is Miles Vinning and Adam Sharif. Vinning is the co-founder of Sila Report, and Sharif is its podcast coordinator and author specializing in Egyptian small arms history. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Matt. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Miles, let's get some basics out of the way. You're the co-founder of this project. What is it exactly? Yeah, so Sila Report began and was born where I saw a sort of niche, a sort of need, a sort of capability gap within researching, within publishing, where for me personally, I was at this period in my life where I was in university and I was intensely fascinated by, first of all, Afghanistan because of my role there as a Marine in 2011. Um, and I was interested in the languages of Pashto and Dari and history and culture. Um, and then also as an extension of that with Islam in the Middle East as well um, at Indiana University. But at the same time, I was also intensely fascinated by small arms. I had had a uh, side career, so to say, which has become my full career now, um, with looking at small arms, researching, writing. I started writing for the Small Arms Review uh, magazine, Small Arms Defense Journal, Firearm Blog, um, Shepherd Nudes eventually, and uh, Armament Research Services as well. And what I saw was a huge gap in that initially you had folks who knew about the guns, um, but they wouldn't understand everything else when it came to looking at the small arms in these regions. They wouldn't understand the names, um, the particular uh, the particular acronyms, the odd nicknames, the the uh, why these things were important. Um, and on the flip side, you had people who understood that stuff, and they could, you know, they were fluent Dari, Pashto, Arabic speakers, and they knew this stuff. They've been studying it. I, these were my professors. These were other experts. These were journalists, and etc. And they knew this stuff very well, and they knew the dynamics of the region, and they understood working around with a lot of the people. Um, but when it came to the small arms, they didn't understand that. And they would see, okay, you know, they could look at a picture of whatever of, you know, it was a conflict in Afghanistan or in Iraq, and they'd say, okay, yeah, that's, you know, an Iraqi whatever, or an Afghan whatever, and they'd say, yeah, whatever, who cares about the gun? 
But then the gun people would look at that same picture and they'd say that is a super rare, super intense, you know, super fascinating small arm. But then when I would ask them, okay, how do you think it got there? You know, the answer was always like, well, I have no idea. I don't know how to answer that. And that's the, that's the point at which Seelach Report was born in that we're taking a look at, through the lens of, you know, of history, of culture, of religion, of politics, of language, of linguistics, um, of online stuff, of, of, of what, and what we uh, value the most of, of primary source stuff and actually getting to the point of origin of a lot of these places and finding out more about these things and then writing about it, reporting about it, um, trying to get stuff published. We've had recently had our first um, article in an academic journal in coordination um, with Aries and with a book coming out by Aries on Kabul Arsenal Martini Henrys. Um, and we're using all that together to have this blend of a story um, to try to answer some of these, you know, fascinating predicaments and mysteries and try to make sense of a lot of what's out there. All right. What is Armament Research Services and how is it connected? So Armament Research Services is a research group that focuses on small arms. Um, they do a lot of work um, for, you know, they've done work for NGOs, for governments, for various organizations beforehand. And we recently joined forces with Ares last year. Um, and so we, we fall under Aries in terms of organization wise. And it's been really good because we've benefited because our quality has gone up. We've gotten better editors. Um, we're able to be, uh, be put more in touch with more different, um, entities and then people that we can work with, uh, to accomplish this stuff. Um, but Aries and Silah report, you'll see the Aries reporting on the Aries website. A lot of what Aries does is actually not on the website in that they do a lot of, um, research projects that is outside of the web. The website is an, you know, it's called the Hoplite. It's their blog. It's a showcasing of the material that they have. So. Adam, how did you get involved in all of this and how would you describe what you do? So basically, I would like to describe myself as a researcher when it comes to uh, small arms, especially in the Middle Eastern region, especially my country, Egypt. And I met Miles by pure coincidence, honestly, so to say. I was doing research on the Egyptian military, spoke to a very famous uh, profile, so to say, on Twitter, EG Defense Review, and through him I found out about uh, Silah Report, and I got into contact with uh, Miles, and I remember our first discussion being over the Hakim rifle, and I remember Miles, you know, seeing a potential in me, and he encouraged me to write about the Hakim rifle, and he later on encouraged me to do more for Silah, and he saw some of the materials that I provide him and whatnot. At that time, I was doing it for my own personal reasons. I wasn't publishing any of my work. I didn't think someone would care about my work, honestly speaking, before Salah Report. I was doing this for all my own knowledge, so to say. And since since then, Adam has um, taken on the role of our podcast coordinator, which he's been killing it at or very recently, our past. Ever since the beginning, it was actually his idea to start the podcast. And I was like, you know, I don't know how is this thing going to fly, but we started it and it's been great. Um, and we've had people on there and this is 
this is like sort of the essence of what we really want to get down to, you know, getting down to the primary source research and asking the questions that we're really fascinated by. Um, the last podcast that we had, we were talking to a hydro dipper in Idlib that was taking um, gun parts and other small arms and then hydro dipping. For those who aren't familiar with that, it's a it's a, essentially a process of where you have a finish applied to the top of a uh, water-based solution and then you put whatever uh, medium you want inside it and you sort of dip it a certain way and then the finish gets applied and then you bake it on. Um, and you can do it to any, almost any object, you know, that's, you know, that can, uh, that can take it. Uh, we can't, we get more into it on the podcast there. And then the podcast before that, we had a, an Iraqi, um, gu- uh, self-taught gunsmith, um, who had actually converted a, an, a, a Soviet era, um, RPD light machine gun, which is a 7.62 by 39 millimeter, um, belt fed, um, bipod mounted, uh, light machine gun and he had converted it to make it look like an american or fn belgian um m249 squad automatic weapon and it, it wasn't an m249 but it looked like an m249 um and we were just ta- and we were just quizzing him about that stuff and that's really what we get into on there why would you do that conversion i gotta know um adam you did the translation for that and you were talking to him a lot with marwan um why, why don't you hit why don't you kick that off yeah it's absolutely fascinating. Before we get to that, to explain that before we started recording with Marwan, that uh, he was speaking with me with an Egyptian dialect, and that's another thing. Perhaps someone to a non-Arab, uh, you know, non-Arabic speaker, they will not notice. But sometimes we interact with different, uh, with different, uh, what you call it, dialects. And for me, it is fascinating to be speaking about small arms to a non-Egyptian, and he's uh, speaking in an Egyptian dialect at first. You know, we're like building bridges, so to say. And then when we started recording, he switched the, you know, to be more official, so to say, formal. Uh, he switched to the Iraqi, Iraqi dialect. So, uh, anyways, to answer your question, it's because he saw what American gunsmiths are doing, and he believes he could do better. And this is related to the view of Arabs, basically, to the West, being more scientifically advanced, being more sophisticated and whatnot. But he saw them doing something that he believed he has the potential to surpass, to show that the Iraqi, the Arab, is capable of doing something even better if he's given the, you know, the necessary resources, so to say. And he did something very amazing, very impressive, and a lot of people definitely in the community spoke about it. So it's just this view of, you know, comparing himself with the West or so, or uh, we can say American, American gunsmiths, the Iraqi gunsmiths versus the American gunsmiths. What are the 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 inspir- What are the bulk inspirations for a lot of the gunsmiths and a lot of the people that are making the modifications that you speak with? Like, is it mostly a Western influence? Or are there still people that are looking to, you know, Russia and Russian small arms and kind of Soviet-era weapons? Um, Adam, if you can take that one. So it differs from one region to another. So don't really expect uh, customizations and modifications to small arms being sold in Saudi Arabia would be the same as in 
Syria, for example. In Syria, it would be more towards functionality uh, than aesthetics, so to say. While in some countries, it would be more towards aesthetics. It's all about the demand in that region. For example, Syria rebels, uh, fighters, freedom fighters, militants, whatever term you want to use, there would be more of how can we make our weapon more effective on the battlefield? While in Saudi Arabia and even in Yemen, although it's a war-torn country, uh, it's an exception there, they would want their weapons to be golden-plated, they want their weapons to look good. Some of them don't even, you know, uh, want to use their firearms. They want to hang it on their uh, walls, so to say. And regarding whether they're leaning towards Soviet or Russian small arms, whether it's American, uh, it's fascinating that the Middle East has weapons from everywhere, literally everywhere from China to Europe to America to Russia to the Eastern Bloc, you name it. So, so there is yeah. no – go ahead. Oh, no. So what I just wanted to add on there as a caveat to that question, um, it, back in what, I, what, uh, what Adam is saying, is that what's, mo- what's more important to look at, what is important to look at – is you, the supply and demand and what is available. And this is where you see a lot of things like conversions um, be, due to the ammunition availability. And this is something you can't see from online, from just looking at pictures and images. And this is something that you really get a feel for on the ground in that there's a basic problem of, okay, you know, we have these rifles, but we have an available stock of these rifles, but there's nothing. We don't have spare parts and we don't have ammunition for them. So, but we do have a, a, a great availability of ammunition for these other ones. So, for instance, a lot of the French rifles, we see examples of, you know, um, Matt, um, Matt 38, you know, bolt action rifles being converted to 7.62 by 5.4 millimeter rimmed, the Russian um, PKM and Mosin Nagat cartridge, because there's no more French ammunition left in the region. But there is a, there's a uh, plentiful amount of PKM ammunition. Can you read the history of the conflict of a region in its small arms? And what does it tell you about uh, its interactions with um, the Western world? And the you know the Eastern powers as well. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. Um, Adam, what, why don't you say? Why don't you say something about that? Yeah. So for me personally, I I agree with you, Mister Miles, one hundred percent that you can definitely, with some countries at least, read their history through their firearms. If we spoke, for example, uh, about Egypt. If we would go back to while Egypt was a monarchy in its last monarchy days, they went to a Swedish, uh, sorry, not Swedish, um, yeah, Swedish rifle uh, manufacturing company, and they uh, went for the Hakim, which is originally the Longman. I really don't know how to pronounce it uh, properly. And at that time, Egypt chose that rifle not based on political leanings or whatnot. Of course, political uh, leanings had to play a role, a limited role. For example, they didn't go to the Soviet Union, who at that time was supporting Israel for a short time. Uh, the Soviet Union played a, a big role in uh, supporting the new state of Israel in the Arab-Israeli war of 1948. So definitely they wouldn't go for Russian stuff, but they went for a European country and they chose a weapon based on availability of ammunition, which was the 8mm Mauser ammunition, which Egypt had a huge stockpile of 
due to, you know, World War II, and they had their own modifications on. So Egypt had, at that time, was more independent, so to say, when it comes to choosing their own um, equipment. But then when Egypt, when the monarchy fell and uh, came the military regime, they started leaning towards the Soviet Union. And we see that huge, you know, transition from European-centric weaponry to Soviet and Eastern Bloc weaponry, Warsaw Pact weaponry, starting from, you know, handguns and whatnot to all the way to tanks and planes. So it is very interesting that you can read through weaponry, small arms and whatnot, a history of a country's political leanings, so to say. So Egypt in the 19, early 1950s, before the coup, was more independent, you know, leaning towards the West, so to say. Definitely anti-socialist, anti-communist. During Nasser, it was leaning towards the Soviets and socialism. And then during Sadat, after the Yom Kippur War, we had Western military equipment coming again. We started buying M60 tanks. We started receiving the F4 Phantoms. So you can definitely read through, you know, to, to a degree, the history of a country through its firearms. And then, so I can add another, another quick example of that, um, the history of the M1 Grand in Iran. In the 1960s, over 160,000 M1 Grands were supplied to the Shah of Iran. And this was just as Adam is talking about with the sort of differences between the Soviets and then going towards each other. Well, the U.S. was trying to sway the Shah, you know, more towards the U.S. side and stuff like military equipment sales and uh, foreign military aid um, was on that list of trying to bring people over. We see this a lot in uh, Jordan where we have – we were researching through cables of Jordanian government officials, you know, sort of quivering on the edge of, you know, hey, U.S., like we can either go towards the Soviets or we can either go towards you. Who is going to give us a better deal? And it was a very real reality back then. But you see them one grand in Iranian military service. Then it gets replaced by the G3 in the 1970s. Uh, G3s begin production in Iran and one grands become regulated to sort of rear echelon militia um, uh, groups. And then Iranian revolution, Islamic revolution takes place in 79 we see the grand come out again as a lot of these groups are, you know, taking rifles from armories and old armories and stuff when we see the grand there. And then we see the grand during the Iran-Iraq war in service with women's auxiliary units that were holding, you know, security positions behind the front line, rear echelon positions because a lot of the men were at the front and couldn't fight. So we see the grand in use during the war because that's the only thing they have left. And Iran was stretched really thin. Iran-Iraq War ends, uh, enter into 2001-2003, OEF and OIF. We see M1 Grands turning up in um, al-Qaeda and uh, Taliban weapons caches in Iraq and in Afghanistan um, because the M1s from Iran have proliferated to both countries and they're still around. And we also see examples of um, Iranian hunters and um, – Today, still using the M1 Grand, um, that is, and they're still being caught when, you know, uh, poachers get caught. They get caught with these rifles alongside, you know, Iranian, uh, Berno or Mauser rifles as well. So, Adam's example of the Hakim and the Iranian example of the M1 Grand, like the, the, these are the, the rifles tell the story of the region and the other way around as well. All right. This is a question for, for both of you because I think you may have different answers. 
Uh, Dom, please go first. Uh, how does a weapon become a status symbol? Meaning, like, here in America, uh, it is the AR-15, is the status symbol weapon for a certain class of, of, of person. Um, what are the stat, like the status symbol weapons that you're seeing in conflicts in the region, in the Middle East? We, we can write a book about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, 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 there are so many factors involved. Like, for example, for uh, jihadists and militant organizations, you know, especially the, those following the Salafi jihadists, and it is the AKS-74U, based on seeing their own leader at one point showing off the weapon all the time. Uh, I'm speaking about Bin Laden. When he used to show up with the AKS-74U, and it will be, like, technically his sidearm. So they made this mental note of, Bin Laden connection, so to say, Bin Laden and the AKS-74U, while in other uh, in other countries, so to say, away from uh, organizations and whatnot and militias, it is the most common weapon. For example, Egypt, it is the AKM, so to say, the Mahdi AKM, whatever term you want to use for it, because they're basically the Egyptian Mahdi is a clone of the Russian AKM, with some modifications, so to say. Uh, it is the most common weapon. It is a weapon that has been used against Israel for uh, a very long while. It has been with us most of the time during, you know, uh, our conflicts with Israel, our modern conflicts. And you would see it also, along with the Bursaid, the uh, Egyptian uh, uh, submachine gun, which is a copy of the Swedish. Uh, what's the name again of it, uh, Miles? The Swedish. Oh, the Swedish cat. <laughs> Carl Gustav. Yeah, the Carl Gustav. Yeah, yeah the Swedish yeah, Gustav. So those two weapons, because they are so common and they have been in so many conflict, they became like status weapons. So in Egypt, we have in Ismailia a monument for uh, the Battle of Ismailia, which is basically the muzzle of an AK, a barrel of an AK with a bayonet attached to it. It's a very large monument. And you have then other monuments and statues of Egyptian soldiers carrying uh, Russian anti-tank grenades and carrying the AK and the Bursaid. That's uh, an example. But sometimes, if we go even back in time, I was still speaking to Miles about it a while ago. Uh, my recent, you know, my dad has recently passed away, and I found very old Egyptian uh, pounds in his, uh, uh, you know, wallet. And I saw a picture of Egyptian soldiers carrying Lee Enfield rifles. It came from a time where Lee Enfield was the standard, you know, rifle in the Egyptian army. And it was the most common weapon, obviously. So you'd see it more in our works and whatnot. Artwork, so to say. So, the, yeah, no, status, status symbols for us are fascinating to look at. Um, the, the example that Adam mentioned about the AKS-74U... In Afghanistan, it's known as the as a Krinkov or the Shinkov, or the Shinkov, um, and that's a that is a Pashtun name that came about during the war. And this is one of the pieces that I was originally really interested in because in the United States people would say because we have that word in the English language in the U.S. a short barreled AK, whether or not it's five four five or seven six two or five five six, a short barreled AK with a folding stock is called a Krinkov or a Krink. And this is one of the things I got really frustrated about is because people were just making stuff up on the spot and saying, well, maybe it was the name of a Russian officer they captured it from. And it was like, 
people didn't bother to go that extra step, you know, to look, okay, what are the Pashtu sources on this? What are the Dari sources on this? Where does this come from? Who first used it? And that's the kind of stuff we look into, right? Um, and that particular rifle, um, carbine, submachine gun, as some might call it, um, you see it in Yemen and it's known as the Jafri and it's known as the Osama gun in other places. Um, on the subject of, you know, status stuff, um, it goes on further to, um, in Iran, the, the logo of his, the, the crest of Hezbollah, um, a lot of people look at it and they think it's a, uh, it's a lopsided AK. But we recently had an article on this by one of our other guys um, named Omar, and he he pointed out that that's not an AK, it's a G3. And the reason why is because when Hezbollah was trying to um, – well, before Hezbollah, the IRGC, the, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, when the designers were putting something together, they wanted to use symbology and they liked the idea of sort of a raised fist with a rifle. But there is too much of a correlation with communist ideologies of a raised fist, you know, raising up in communism, socialism. Um, and the AK was sort of the symbolism of communism, as it's, it still is sometimes today. So instead of an AK, they put a G3, which the G3 was in the region. It was uniquely Iranian. Saudi Arabia also had G3s. Um, but uh, Iran was producing them at that time and still producing them today. Um, so by putting a upraised fist with a G3, this is a uniquely um, symbolic IRGC symbol. And that got later changed to Hezbollah when they adopted it. And then today you see examples of AKs with a raised fist in some of the Iraqi uh, PMU um, or uh, or what is colloquially known as the Hashashabi units in Iraq with a raised fist and an AK. But the difference is that communism isn't a big deal right now in that the communism, no one really cares about communism anymore. There's the symbology isn't there. The whole generation has passed that doesn't care about communism. So having an AK in an outstretched hand isn't a isn't a problem as in 1979 when there was a definite you know um, interest in a lot of communist issues. Uh, another thing I want to ask about is uh, and sorry, give me one second here. All right. Another thing I want to ask about um, is this idea, and Adam, you'd kind of spoken about it in Saudi Arabia, this idea of like weapons that are aesthetically pleasing, but you don't use. Um, why, like what, what is the particular culture of like Saudi Arabian gold plated weapons? And like, why even bother having a weapon you're not going to use? Like what's the, kind of the logic and culture there? Basically, that whole thing of owning a weapon and whatnot uh, and not using it and showing it, it's basically a sign of wealth, wealth sign of strength, sign of uh, capability for a family or a tribe. Even the same mentality you would find it in southern Egypt. Southern Egypt, you have enough uh, firearms to equip two Hezbollahs, not even one Hezbollah. I'm not uh, over-exaggerating here. And anyone who did any research on uh, arms smuggling in the south of Egypt knows what I'm speaking about. Uh, but usually, but people don't use it most of the time. They actually keep it for... Uh, Showing off, so to say, as I said, on walls and whatnot. And the mentality behind it, as I said, it is basically a sign of 
power, a sign of strength, a sign of wealth, a sign of, uh, you know, getting things that are not easily, can, you know, uh, cannot be easily gotten. So a sign of uh, connections, being uh, able of forming connections with other people that can get you such things. And the same thing goes in Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia has far by far, you know, more loose laws when it comes to owning firearms. And that's and that makes them want to show off in a different way. So owning, for example, a 1911 pistol in Saudi Arabia would not be enough because it's easier for people there to own it. It's way easier than, for example, in Egypt. So what can we do to stand out? Okay. I would like to have it gold uh, plated and, you know, with certain engravings and whatnot. So they would do something for that, something that is more expensive, something that is more costly. Again, it's basically a shown off. That can be also, I didn't do much research on it, to be frank with you, a connection to the whole thing of the old history of the Arabian Peninsula, where every man back even before the feudal times, before the, you know, even the Bronze Era, had to carry a sword with him. Every man had to carry a sword with him. And it's mentioned a lot in Arab, Arabic literature to protect his family, to protect his merchandise, to protect his caravan, his life. So that can be attributed to the whole thing as well. And you have, for example, a, good, a very good example is the North Yemeni Civil War, which unfortunately most people were either in the Middle East or even the West have heard, you know, didn't hear about it. Uh, Egypt was involved in that war. It was Egypt's Vietnam, so to say, where uh, you had the Egyptians supporting the Republicans and you had the Saudis, the Israelis, the British, uh, sending mercenaries and sending firearms to support the loyalists. I will not get deep into this, but it caused such a proliferation in weapons that it is absolutely normal in Yemen for someone to carry a firearm. No problems whatsoever. And that's why there were some pictures around on the internet showing a Yemeni guy carrying an AK-47 and the security, of, uh, security guard or some soldier, you know, basically searching him. And people seeing that picture would comment like, what the hell, can't he see the assault rifle he's carrying, the firearm? And the guy's actually searching him for a suicide vest or, you know, some sort of explosive because people checking that picture will not get that owning a firearm is completely normal in, the, in Yemen. It's the norm. In fact, I have been told before by Yemeni, you're not considered a man if you don't own a firearm. There was there's a Jordanian um, gun shop um, he worked in a gun shop and, and he said he had this neat quote to me where he told me, um, you know, in previous times, um, Jordanians had the camels and had camels and swords. Well, the pickup truck has replaced the camel and the shotgun has replaced the sword. Um, that there's not as much, there's not as many firearms in, uh, Jordan as there are in Yemen. Um, but that was, that's a colloquial point there. Um, but on that, so it's, I think it's also interesting, uh, you know, like, you know, how come everyone has these gold guns, but they don't, and they don't use them? What's the point of having a gun that you don't use? Um, I'd just like to add a, uh, a, um, a, a point of fact in most of the golden firearms that I've observed, that I've looked at in reference collections. It's interesting because like, we see like, you know, the golden for the, the presentation cases and the golden guns are inside them, but the majority of them don't have cleaning kits. So this is like a, uh, 
you know, um, a very real aspect of, yeah, you're getting presented with this golden gun. You're not actually going to use it. If you're actually going to use it, it would come with a cleaning kit because you'd have to clean it, but you're, you're not going to use it because you're in that leadership position. Um, and, in, and let me, in another way to look at this, and then we'll go back to uh, status symbols as well. So we were re- recently researching something, and this really stuck out. Um, but we were researching this um, 37, 38 millimeter riot, uh, riot gun um, that in, was described in Chinese as Excalibur. And the Chinese translation for Excalibur, and as you recall, Excalibur was King Arthur's sword, um, in the, in the tale, but the Chinese translation of Excalibur is actually the sword of God. And what that comes down to is we see a manifestation of power in a, a manifestation of a leader's power in an object. And you look at, you know, the Chinese translation, sword of God, and you, you look at, um, the, what the emperor, the Chinese emperors would have. Um, I can't talk too much about that, but they would have this sort of, they would have a sword at their hand, and this would be a very ornate, like elaborate sword. And the point of that was, this is the physical extension of their power. So people would see this. And that's why you see it. And that's why you see it, you know, with King Arthur in Excalibur. King Arthur is the only guy who can draw that sword out of the rock because that sword is an extension of his power, of his might. So you think of an Excalibur as, a, as we go back to status symbols, having a golden gun is sort of an Excalibur of that. And I, the idea behind not using it goes back to if you're a leader, you know, if you're really that powerful, you have an army that fights for you. You lead an army that does these things. You don't, you, you're not out there, you know, slugging it away in the trenches and in the ditches. You, you're not supposed, that's not your role. Your role is to lead that army and to encourage people. You're not going to be fighting. And that Excalibur item that you have, that's your, that's your piece of power. Other people fight, not you. Um, but that's another perspective on that. I am maybe one of my favorite answers so far. That was, that was good. Um, obviously it's not all about weapons. Weapons come with a lot of accessories, modifications, uh, scopes, stocks, all sorts of different modifications can be made to a weapon. Um, obviously it's going to change depending on region, but question again for both of you, uh, miles, if you want to start off, um, what are some of the common accessories and modifications you see in your work? The, the same, the same stuff. Well, the same stuff that we see in NATO American militaries. You see a lot of people trying to copy what people have in the West. So, big thing is lasers and optics, and some sort of a stock. Like when I say a stock, I mean some sort of collapsing folding telescope and stock to make things shorter. Um, going back to the status symbol stuff, everyone likes a short rifle. That's why the short rifles in these regions tend to be one of the part of the status symbols, ju- not just because of, you know, that power that they hold, but also because they're just super convenient because you can just fit them anywhere. Um, and that is highly important in a lot of these mobile conflicts where you're running around in a vehicle, you do a lot of driving, you're jumping in and out, um, such as in Syria, um, and you want something that's short. But then you have the lasers and optics and people love that. They love putting that stuff on there. The problem is a lot of what people put on there is, is junk or people don't know how to use it. Um, and, and this is what I always say, you know, for instance, looking at the Taliban, um, you see propaganda videos of Taliban fighters with, um, ATN, uh, core or, uh, pulsar, um, you know, thermal or night vision optics. And you see some, you know, PEC 15, PEC 16, uh, laser aiming modules on them, you know, and the problem here is that it's, 
one thing to have a capability. It's another thing to know how to use it. And this is something you don't see from you look at a picture online and people are looking at it and saying, oh, look, you know, the Taliban have this night vision capability. And I'm looking at that and I'm saying, okay, great. Do they know how to use it? Are those optics zeroed? Are those lasers zeroed? Do they have spare batteries? I mean, fighting at night is an incredibly complex operation, even for um, professional militaries in NATO in the United States. Um, it is extremely hard. You have to do a lot of training. You have to know how each other, how people work. And that doesn't happen overnight with a night vision optic. Um, but they're trying to emulate those forces at the same time. And unfortunately, people have these optics and stuff. But what they don't, so they, what they don't see is all the training that goes behind in a Marine platoon, in a U.S. Army platoon, in an SF asset, um, an ODA team. They don't see the thousands and thousands of hours and pain and torture and hazing that goes into a successful unit. And they just see the unit performing successfully at night and they say, Oh, look, well, they got the optic. Well, the optic makes all the difference. So that's one example of, of what, of what we've seen for that stuff. Um, lasers, optics and sites and uh and stocks Adam. so i definitely agree with what miles have said but i have to say that even this is changing you have uh, certain training units for example malhama tactical in syria which is uh, so to say raising the awareness of having a competent trained force and that is something else we're seeing militias uh, middle eastern militias changing to become much more effective and well-trained force, not necessarily on par to uh, Western troops, but definitely enough to give them uh, a difficult time. So, so I believe the days where you see some militant firing an AK overhead or, you know, just hip firing and dancing across the street while firing from, you know, a machine gun, a PKM, uh, these days might come to a close uh, in the not-so-far future, as uh, we see that even ISIS have learned the importance of a well-trained force. In fact, it is well known that ISIS have invested a lot in improving the performance of their troops, and they had tactical superiority in Syria over some of the revolutionary rebels, so to say, and even initially the Kurds that gave them the upper hand. So uh, we can see that it is becoming, oh, we have the, op the night visions now, whether they are legit American Western night visions looted from local armies or, or whatnot, uh, uh, to, the, to the point where they're saying, okay, we, now we have the stuff, now we need to know how to use the stuff and use them efficiently and effectively on the battlefield. All right, another question for both of you, Adam, if you'll start. Of, so I'm assuming that you both have actually fired some of these weapons. Um, what are your favorite guns to actually fire? Huh. Uh, with all due uh, respect, I think first he, he, he definitely was answer first. Go ahead, Miles. Um, I, I think I think my favorite gun is the crank, is the AKS seventy for you. Um, I own one. I shot I've shot mine a lot. Um, I uh, it, it's I like it because it is fun to fire. It's fun to shoot. Um, it's just that's that short little compact package, but. I, I like the – I'm more interested in the sort of symbology and the interest and the history of it 
than um, the actual effectiveness of it. That's what really – and here's the thing though is that um, being into firearms and stuff like that, it's when I can – when you can actually hold that thing and you can actually feel it and you have that sort of connection to history and you're like, wow, I'm feeling holding and shooting what was actually being used in these time periods that fascinate me. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to – and this is why I love studying firearms as opposed to, you know, you could do the same – Sort of, um, you can do the same sort of studies of this stuff that we do with tanks or missiles or hand grenades, but it's kind of hold. To, it's kind of hard to you know hold a one five five artillery piece you know in your hand and be like, wow, there's so much history in this. It's like, well, first of all, you can't hold it because it weighs, I don't know, five hundred pounds or something. Um, no, several tons. Um, it's the same, same thing with a grenade or like an RPG round. It's like, well, like, yeah, this grenade has really seen some stuff, right? It's like, um, but you can do that with a firearm. You have, you can have that sort of personal connection to wood and, uh, metal and steel and now plastic. Um, yeah. You're having a whole different experience on the range than the rest of us. I see. (laughs) I I like blazing away too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Adam? So in my case, I live in Kuwait, and uh, so the last time I actually fired the uh, firearm was uh, three years ago. Mm, going to the shooting range in Kuwait is quite expensive, and the availability of firearms is quite exp- is quite limited. And uh, I still remember it very well. I used a couple of handguns, nothing really uh, with historical background, so to say. Most of the stuff were produced, you know, manufactured recently, so not really much history behind it. Uh, but I would love to, you know, I understand his point, understand uh, Miles' point of, point of view, because I've seen historical weaponry, real-life firearms, you know, in museums and whatnot. And I would love just to, you know, I'll never do that, but, you know, smash the glass and grab the rifle and feel it in my hands. I definitely want to, for example, use a Hakim one day. So, for example, to give you an idea, I'm holding a 1911 lighter in my hand, a lighter in the shape of a 1911 handgun, and this is probably the closest thing I would ever get to holding something that resembles a 1911 in Kuwait. Uh, I did hold an AKM, uh, an AKMS in Kuwait, but that was an illegal AKMS, and I was just, my, I was amazed. Because for me, as I said, something that is difficult to obtain, something that is difficult to find, something that can get me in much trouble. I, just having it in my hand was an incredible experience. And I don't own that AKMS, and it's not with me. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> what is the strangest small arm y'all have encountered doing this work? There's a lot. There's a lot of weird ones. Um, I can t- I think I can tell you the coolest one, the coolest one I've, I've ever ran into in, um, in Iraq and Syria is a, uh, a VZ, uh, the VZ 24, VZ 26. It's just such a, such a neat little submachine gun. Everything folds into each other and unscrews each other. And it's got a, you know, magazine, um, um, it's got a stripper, it's got a stripper clip loader in, embedded in the carrying and then the, uh, the, the forward grip like that. It's just, it's a cool, neat little thing. Um, and then I can tell you the strangest, weirdest, um, methodology thing that we've come across is in Syria. 
um, Kurdish forces and and Arabs that work with the Kurdish forces in the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, they believe that if you press the the forward um, assist of the M of an M sixteen A two A four M four, um, if you press that while you're firing the rifle, um, it actually makes the bullet more powerful, and you can go through you know at least two or three uh, cinder blocks as opposed to one. Um, with the same ammunition that um, I'm trying not to laugh when describing it because it's so it's so ridiculous. Um, uh, with the same ammunition that they've shot before, and it actually has an effect on the round. Um, and that's one of the strangest, most oddball things I've ran into uh, methodology wise. Can do you have any idea why that belief persists? Yeah, and I think there's and I think there's a rationale behind it um, from what I've come up with. Um, so, first of all, how it began probably has more to do with like myth and lore and like like image. In that, I'm I'm we're wondering if somehow when the Kurds, when the uh, Yapaga Kurds. Um, the Syrian Yapaga Kurds first started, you know, getting supplies of M16s or sort of started using them. Um, one idea is that someone asked someone, you know, some experienced guy, you know, probably some former Pukaka fighter, like, hey, what does this button do? And the guy did not want to say, I don't know. You know, I think like, what's that? There's some joke talking about. Like, uh, like image, like image among Kurds, among Arabs. And it's like, you know, do you know where this building is? And it's like, well, the first answer to that is it's somewhere far away from me. I'm not going to tell you that I don't know where it is, but I am going to say it's somewhere else. And, you know, you don't want to admit that you don't know something. So that might be part of it. That some experienced guy didn't want to admit that he actually had no clue what the forward assist on an M16 did. Um, the other thing that I, that I think about it uh, and a more and almost more rational thing is that I actually think that when they're doing this, when they're pushing forward on a forward assist, I think they are actually more accurate. Um, I don't think they're, they're obviously not doing anything to the bullet because there's the same ammunition. Um, so I actually think some of these fighters, when they're actually pressing forward on the forward assist, their rounds are actually more accurate than if they weren't. And thus, it sort of confirms their belief. And why I say this is because if if anybody has seen precision rifle shooters, whether uh, military snipers or in the sort of uh, precision rifle series, you know, precision rifle shooters, long range shooters in the United States, there is a very, very um, prevalent technique of bringing your thumb along the right side of the rifle. And for some people, it doesn't do anything. For a lot of people, it actually helps because you're taking pressure off the side of the pistol grip or the side of a slant stock if it's a non-pistol grip rifle. And you're putting it along your right, uh, your right trigger finger and you have less pressure and less torque on the rifle. So as you're shooting, sometimes shooters have a tendency to sort of torque their hand because if you, if you really grip your hand and your thumb is on the left side of the rifle, you'll, your, your hand, like you, you can do it right now if you're listening to this. Um, you know, hold your hand as if you're holding a firearm and then sort of put a lot of pressure in it. Your hand might, squeeze into each squeeze in together and then it will twerk to the left and that might be enough to throw your shot off if you're doing the precision if you're doing precision stuff at you know 500 meters a thousand yards so if they're doing that and they're putting their right thumb on the right side of the uh, rifle and they're pushing against the forward assist 
they might actually be getting more precise, uh, more accurate shots. Um, but it's not the reasons what they, why they think it is. That's the closest I've come to reality um, on that, on a long way to answer that question. Uh, Adam, what's the strangest thing you've seen? Uh, actually, it's something that I wrote an article about the Egyptian do-it-yourself Thompson. So basically, during the Swiss crisis, War 1956, which basically had uh, Egypt facing France, Britain, and uh, France, Britain, and Israel, you know, invading Egypt simultaneously. Uh, you had, the, I believe, was it the Brits landing in uh, Ismailia? Yeah, I believe so. If I, if I didn't really screw up my uh, history, memory of history. And you had some popular resistance to the Brits. And Egypt did have Thompsons, you know, stockpiles from World War II. So someone had the idea of gathering parts of a legit Thompson and making a crude one, so to say. And it was captured by the Brits. And a couple of researchers, uh, researchers was, you know, done on it. And uh, a small report was written on it. But, you know, it's buried in the internet. So you had to do a lot of digging and whatnot, and I wrote an article about it, because if it wasn't obviously for me trying to bring it out to the public through Saleh report, whatever that was written on uh, on Thompson, that Egyptian do-it-yourself Thompson, would have been left obscured, honestly. And I believe Miles got contacted by one of the researchers who did actually work with that uh, captured example and uh, there was some messaging going back and forth you know informing miles that hey we saw the article that was written so that is something else that i found interesting honestly it's for me it's the most interesting piece so to say yeah so so to give so yes so to give um some so so to give more credit for that piece to talk about it um that egyptian thompson was it was mentioned previously in a uh, in a Nelson Mangrave or Wargrave, whatever his name is, uh, Wargrave and Nelson's uh, book. They talked a little bit about it, but they got a little they got some stuff wrong in terms of um, uh, the measurements that they were looking at. Um, and there's another guy who wrote about it um, in a in a web in a website who lives in the UK. Um, whose web page is now down? I don't know why it's down now. I just tried going to it. Um, it's a really good website that talks about uh, submachine gun designs, and it's not very prevalent. Um, but he talked about it, and he actually sent us pictures um, of the of the Egyptian Thompson in uh, the National Firearms Center in the United Kingdom, and that is definitely on one of our to do lists. And that's part of the Seal Report mission is to get in touch with the primary sources. And we do have a uh, a self proclaimed mission. We do want to get to um, the NFC again and actually. Uh, uh, record that thing in much better quality and detail and then get it back up on the website. So, you know, the Thompson is actually my favorite thing to fire. Uh, and this is, I'm looking at the pictures of the Egyptian uh, model now. It's fascinating, the, the small differences uh, between the two. That is very odd. Okay, sorry. Back to, back to questions. Um, all right, so I think that that kind of about runs through my questions. Can you tell me how people can find your work, how they can support it, and what you guys have coming out soon? 
So first of all, uh, we need money. All right. <laughs> so if you, if you like what you heard and you're interested in this stuff, the work that we do, um, costs money. We have to go, we're, you know, going to reference collections, um, web hosting, trying to get this stuff out, paying authors, paying people to write about this stuff and research it. Um, and these are, and the thing is the authors that contribute to Salah Report, a lot of them are native language speakers of the stuff that they're talking about. We've got people researching stuff in Urdu and Pashto and Dari and Farsi, in Ottoman Turkish, in modern day Turkish, in various dialects of Arabic. Um, we've even got connections to, um, um, uh, the original Berber language in, um, Algeria, uh, Amazigh. Um, talk about an oddball language there in Hebrew as well. Um, so we need to pay for these articles somehow. And what we've got right now is you can either support us on Patreon. Um, we've got a Patreon uh, group going. Um, that is the best way to directly support us. If you're not interested in Patreon, however, we do have our Silah shop, and that's on the website. And from there, we've got – we're trying to get products out there. So we had um, a, y a YPG magazine wraps, like some of these weird novelty things that – we study about and we look at and we're trying to get them out, you know, trying to get them for sale in the United States. So we had a run of YPG magazine and rifle wraps um, that are sold out now. We're trying to get them back on. But in the meantime, we've got patches and stickers and all of our, all of our material is actually made in the region. Um, so for instance, the patches that we have are various renderings of Takriya Silah or uh, Silah report in Arabic or weapon report. Um, and they're actually produced in Iraq. They're produced in uh, the KRG region, the Kurdish re uh, regional government in Erbil. Um, we're actually working right now, as, I'm, as I record this podcast, I'm in Kabul, Afghanistan, and I was just at a patchmaker today, and we're going to try to get some Afghan patches out. Um, so you can see that kind of stuff. Um, and you can actually, you know, you know, have it. It's just a cool little memento. Um, so, yeah. And then if, if you don't want to, of course, if you don't want to, um, shell, shell out or anything. Um, we have all our social media links. It'd be great. We have a spot on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. Um, we, we just started a Telegram channel. We have a Discord channel as well. Um, yeah. So come one, come all. And what are the addresses for all this stuff? Um, Silah Report, S I L A H, uh, Space Report or underscore report or at Silah Report with no space. Um, if you just, just search on, um, I, I'll send a copy to you as well, but, uh, you know, if you just search on, uh, Facebook or you just search on Instagram or you just search on Twitter, uh, slash report, you'll find it, or you just search on Patreon, you'll find it as well. Um, for those, for those who don't realize, um, Silah, um, is a similar or same word in a number of different languages in the areas that we study, um, in Arabic, in Farsi, in Kurdish, in Turkish, and in Pashto as Wisla, and then also in Urdu as well. Um, and that's the sort of the tie, the word that binds everything. And it also shows that, you know, we're interested in all this stuff linguistically as well. That word is spelt S-I-L-A-H um, in the modern day Turkish Republic um, rendition um, of, of, uh, of using Roman characters um, for the Turkish language. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for coming on to War College and walking us through your work. Thank you very much. I was I thought that you were going to speak first, so I was waiting for you. Thank you very much, Mr. Matthew. And thank you very much, sir, for having us on. It, uh, the honor has been all ours.
That's it this week, War College listeners. War College is myself, Matthew Galt, and Kevin Nodell. You can follow us on Twitter at war underscore college or at MJGAULT and at KJK Nodell. Good news, Kevin is back in the United States and he will be talking, he will be telling us his story very soon. <laughs>